here we are clearing oh. our throats on the Carl Landry Record Club. <laughs> I'm usually the one. You're usually the one clearing your throat when we record in the morning, Mootlu. Yes, the morning. Uh, it's. I've developed a system mm-hmm. uh, where I try to get up. I actually read out loud, and I have a whole warm up system. But even so, for the pod, uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, mm, yeah, I try wow. because I felt like I had to do something because like doing it in the morning is is tough, you know, because I'm not really a morning person. But I actually like doing it first thing. So I try to develop like a, a, a thing, but still, it's never 100%. <laughs> you know, especially if you have like, if I've been up late the night before, if the show the night before or something, you know, it's like, uh, but I do have a system. I read out, I actually read, read the Shakespeare book out loud. Really? Yeah, I don't read like the, the passages. It's like a Could book about Could you record that one time and we put it on social? Sure. Just sure, you reading Shakespeare out loud? Uh, it's not actually, it's a book about Shakespeare. That's fine. Whatever Dissecting the empathy of Shakespeare. And then there's little passages interspersed. But I'll find one where it's like a breakdown of what's happening and then reads and then read the little passages. Yeah, I just, I just want to, I want a real recording of you doing it. That's okay. That's a- <laughs> Welcome to the Carl Andrew Record Club, a music pod from the rights Ricky Sanchez. We are a music podcast appreciation. We go over two albums, every pod. A lot of times, a new song as well. The goal is to tell you about an album that we love from our lives and for you to tell an album, tell us about an album that you love from your lives and us to listen to it. It is the old school way of suggesting music to each other. I was listening to Chuck Klosterman and Bill Simmons talk about, like they had this long podcast in the end, they were talking about memory and they were talking about what if the world gave you, what if science gave you the ability to erase parts of your memory so you could experience things for the first time again, like experience an album for the first time. Or, and there's a lot of, that's a, a long conversation to have, but I think part of what's good about this pod is we are actually like great albums. You and I, you suggest one one week, I suggest one the next week, the listener suggests one. We are experiencing these all-time albums for the first time in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah, in many cases, uh, artist or a record I might've heard of before, but you, unless you have a context to get into, you don't always delve in head first. And now with this pod, it, it gives you a context to do it. So there's so many records I'd heard about or artists I'd heard about that I'd never really listened to. And now it's like, I've absorbed, I'm thinking about how much we've absorbed. Yeah, a in lot. In the course of a few years, it's a lot to think yeah. back through. So we, we're going to do two, we, we haven't recorded in weeks. It is my <laughs> fault. And we are going to do two albums today that... Based on when we first talked about them, we should have listened to at least 600 times, maybe even forgot about them at this point. So so two albums today, it's my, two albums and one new song. It is my pick for album this week. So my album is Stain's Dysfunction, which came out in 1998. The listener album is Mark Lanigan's Bubblegum, which came out in 2004, came from Travis, who suggested it on our link tree, which you can, you can suggest an album, like just Google the podcast, honestly. If you're following us on social, there's a link up in the bio. If you go to carlandrewrecordclub.com or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review and leave it in the review. Travis did it on the, the link in our bio. Travis says, Mark Lanigan, Bubblegum. I love Lanigan and could make arguments for some of his other albums, but this is the one that really got me into him. Love the pod, gents. And then we occasionally do, we try to do, whoa, 
I almost yeah, played it accidentally yeah, there. Yeah, bump, bump that, John. The, uh, <laughs> a new song, and that is Moot's pick this week. It is This Could Be from Reuben James. From I thought you were album. about to start just rocking it. And yeah, rocking from, it. The, from the <laughs> album Champagne Kisses, which came out this year. Why don't we start with Lanigan? I, you know, yes. it's funny. Like, I think these albums, I feel like they go together in in some ways. I feel like you know, on, on some level, they they live in a in a similar ecosystem. And there's actually a a, a producer tie-in, which I'll I'll tell you about between we, Mark Lanigan and Stained. Yeah, when we when we that I didn't know about when we get to the Stained album that I'll tell you about. But why don't we start with Lanigan? Yeah. Now, were you you were familiar with Mark Lanigan? I'm yeah, thinking. just that he was the singer of the Screaming Trees and that one album that must have come out in '93 or whatever that had nearly lost you on it. Like you know, I think I listened to that album just like everybody else did. But that was, and I knew who Mark Lanigan was, but that was pretty much it. Well, kind of getting to what we were talking about before, he's another artist that I've been aware of for a long time, but never really did like a deep dive into anything that he's done. And when you look at his career. He was uh, extraordinarily prolific. I mean, yeah. one of the most prolific probably rock artists, songwriters that I've come across. I think one of the most amazing things to me was for somebody who I didn't listen to very often, like I was never a Screaming Trees fan. As soon as the album started, I recognized his voice. Right, like his, right. his voice is pretty is pretty singular and recognizable for somebody who I, I haven't listened to that, that much in my life. Yeah, unmistakable. Now, I got introduced to him through a record that we discussed a while ago. It was actually, I'm surprised one of us hadn't picked it, but it was actually listener pick was Mad Season. Yes, yes, that, yes. Because he makes some appearances on there, the Lance yep. Daly, Mike McCready. But just to give a little background on Mark Lanigan, because there's a connection. It's interesting. He was very much a part of this the grunge movement. I mean, he was there early. Screaming Trees were there early. But I feel like because he didn't have the big commercial success, maybe of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, some of these groups, that he almost skated around that in a way. I don't necessarily know that people attach him to that as much as they do those bands. Does that make sense? Right. Because absolutely, he didn't have, he wasn't part of the marketing blitz for that whole thing. Right, 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 right. But give a little backdrop on Mark Lanigan, vocalist, songwriter, musician, producer, originally from Ellensburg, uh, Washington. Started his career in Seattle with the Screaming Trees in 1984. They were prolific. I mean, it's not just that he was prolific as a solo artist and all these collaborations, but they made seven studio albums and five EPs over the course of their 16 years together until they split up in 2000. He also started his solo career concurrently with the Screaming Trees. So his debut record came out in 1990. There's an album called the, the, the Winding Sheet. But it was actually right on the heels of him making that record that the Screaming Trees really achieved their greatest level of commercial success. Kind of the record you were mentioning, yeah. you know, um, the song Never Lost You became a hit in 92 thanks to being on the single soundtrack. I think the single soundtrack has come up a handful of times now. Yeah, well, it's such a, <laughs> yeah, soundtracks were such a, such a big thing in the 80s and 90s and I think could be cultural touch points and the single soundtrack was certainly one of them. Absolutely. So the inclusion of this song there was big. At the time, uh, you know, MTV certainly uh, gave them some exposure with the record that that song came from, Sweet Oblivion. So they kind of had a big moment <clears throat> commercially. 
Now, behind the release of that record of Sweet Oblivion, they toured very extensively, but they were a band that, not an uncommon thing, heavy drinking band, they had a very uh, tumultuous time together. Uh, it's impressive that they stuck around together for 16 years, especially when you consider that Mark Lanigan had so many other things going on, but they did stay as a band. But that tour in particular was marked with uh, with a lot of conflicts on the road. And, and they kind of were having a big moment. And it's actually surprising to some level that they stayed together after that, but they did for almost another decade. Now, Mark Lanigan, in addition to Screaming Trees, because we could probably do... There's so much that he's done, you could probably go to any branch of his musical career and kind of do a deep dive into it. So we could probably go all in on the Screaming Trees. Yeah, for but sure. Be- because it's a Mark Lanigan record, I think there's much more to him than than that band. Someone who collaborated extensively over the years with such a wide range of artists. Now, actually, he and Kurt Cobain recorded an album of Lead Belly covers that was never released. And I'm thinking to myself, well, where is that record? Like, does who, does anyone... It's got to be somewhere, right? I mean, is it bootleg? Does it, well, because I, the, the song from Unplug. My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Tell me when did you sleep last night? In the plants, in the plants, where the sun... Where did you sleep last night? That's a Lead Belly song, right? Right. So that was yeah. probably on that record. Well, yeah, and it's on it's on Unplugged. It's on Nirvana Unplugged. That so that wow. If that record exists somewhere, why isn't it out? Apparently, they recorded this. Jesus, and it just why isn't shipped. it out? It's one of those things. Maybe it's a a legal thing. That's it's hard to know. But how could that not come out? I mean, that's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, he had a great friendship and collaboration with Kurt Cobain. Of course, the way I was introduced to him was through the uh, Mad Season album. He sings on several tracks there. He collaborated extensively over the years with the band The Queens of the Stone Age and had a great uh, collaboration with that group. Same thing with Greg Dooley of the Afghan Wigs. They mm-hmm. worked very extensively together over the year. Isabel Campbell of Bell and Sebastian. I mean, he had a series of different artists that it wasn't just like a one-off collaboration. Like He worked with these artists on an extensive basis. And he must have just never left the studio. That's all I can think. When I look at his, how much work he did uh, in the time, you know, sadly he passed away uh, last year. Uh, and he was only in his like mid late 50s, but he must have just never left the studio. Now, putting aside Screaming Trees, all the collaborations he did, he also released seven, 11 solo albums, which is 11? 11. 11 wow. solo albums. So, like I was saying, I was thinking about like how many records has he been involved in? Uh, because there are seven Screaming Trees records, five EPs, 11 solo albums, and that doesn't even touch uh, some of these collaborations, which a series of records with those artists, too. So he's got probably one of the most prolific discographies. And it's it's crazy to me because I think people, everyone's, you know, people who follow music or into rock music know him or wear him or aware of Mark Lanigan, but I feel like in the mainstream, he's a, a bit unheralded. I would say so. Yeah, I, d- I don't think he has the same sort of, you know, market awareness that um, that he probably should, given his influence and how much music he put out. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. And when you think of everybody he worked with, how's how's that possible? Even the, yeah. even down to the fact that they were on the vanguard, the Screaming Trees of that grunge movement. I mean, they were there 
kind of at the beginning, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, but 11, 11 studio albums uh, alongside all the other work he did. He also wrote two memoirs towards the end of his life, Sing Backwards and Weep and Devil in a Coma. Now, he and his wife moved to Ireland in 2020, and he had struggled for most of his life with drug and alcohol addiction, but he had been sober for the last decade of his life. And uh, sadly, in 2022, he passed away due to un- unspecified reasons, but left behind an incredible body of work. I mean, just listening to this record made me think, oh, man, this I got to check out more of what he's done because I really didn't know much beyond Mad Season. No, yeah, and I only knew the the one record aside from that. This album is so good. Oh man, I mean, this is this is one of the best like rock albums I've heard. Period. And I I don't know if I can call it a rock record because it's more it's beyond just your a straight ahead rock record. I think the thing that struck me as a comparison to the Stained album, and we'll get to the Stained thing in a second, is that the Stained album was like this album of, of a band figuring out who they were. This album is just so, like, knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Like, it's so professionally done. I don't mean <laughs> that it sounds slick or anything. It's just you listen to it, and you're like, oh, this motherfucker knows what he's doing. You know what I mean? The, yes. the entire album's that way. It's the work of a craftsman, someone who's been doing this for a long time. A hundred, who knows exactly who he is and knows exactly what he wants to do and knows exactly what he wants it to sound like. It's remarkable if you think about it that an artist can be so good at what they do uh, as a performer, as a writer, as a producer, that you walk away with that sense. Like you, yeah. you listen and you say, oh man, this is just, this knows what it is. Not, you don't always feel that with every record, you know, some... Some artists you don't get that from, but with him you do. Now, this was his sixth album, sixth studio album. And, man, where to start? It's just a great listen start to finish, but I'll just do a few highlights. When Your Number Is Up, the, the lead track. Did you call for the night, Porter? You smell the blood running warm. I stay close to this frozen border So close I can hit it with a stone uh, What a song. That that just sets the record off perfectly. I love the sparse sort of production on that. And then his voice. You are saying his voice. Talk about a gravelly baritone singer. Yeah. I mean, he's maybe the best I've heard that with that sort of vocal timbre and style. And I like his approach on this song and that you hear it on some other tunes where he has a powerful voice and he has great sustain in his voice, great resonance, but he gets in that kind of conversational style at times. Yeah, uh, like there, there's almost like this weird, like dark Lou Reed or dark Springsteen thing that he has going on. And, uh, and it also, it made me think of... Uh, like a gravelly David uh, Leo Pepe. Like yes. I, I thought of all of these things in his, his delivery is so, it's a combination of all these things that you don't really hear any, in any other place. It's like a little bit of all of these things. The David Leo Pepe com, uh, comparison that they have kind of a similar, similar timbre, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Y- you know, similar kind of vocal range and uh, this tune and then, you know, get his performance, but then you get to the lyrics the lyrics on this one really hit me. There's sort of this sense of weariness and isolation. When I look, when I read back through the lyrics on this tune, I thought what I took away from it was the character in the song. I, I guess maybe it's him. 
like cheated death somehow. Right. That's which is an unusual theme to come away with from a song. Like he's talking yeah. about how he cheated death. Like right, he's right, right, right on the right. doorstep. Because there are a few lines that were, uh, really stuck out to me. He said, "When the sun is finally going down, you're overdue to follow, but you're still above the ground." What you got coming is hard to swallow, like blood running warm. I mean, just there's a poetry in the way he writes his lyrics. Did they call for the night porter and smell the blood? Blood running warm. Well, I've been waiting at this frozen border so close you could hit it with the stone. I mean, it's just, there's imagery, and you hear this throughout the record. It's not just great production and, and performance and melodic construction, but like he, I think he took a lot of time and care with the lyrics too. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, it's another stand up. Wedding dress was another one that really. Uh, stood out to me. Tomorrow's will you walk with me underground and forgive all my sicknesses and my sorrows? Will you be shamed if I shake like I'm dying? When I fall to my knees. At times he reminded me of Tom Waits. Oh, I hear that too, Waits. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually got me thinking we got to do a Tom Waits record. Maybe Rain Dogs would be the one to do. But uh, there's a similar grit in their voices, but even in some of the production, I could hear a parallel, especially on that one. On that tune in particular, one thing I took away from this record and, and on songs like this one is the, the rhythmic part of this album. Mm -hmm. It's not just a conventional rock backbeat thing. It's it's almost never that there's always something unique about the about the rhythm track, and then on this one he sings with uh, this vocalist Wendy Ray Fowler, and about midway through on that tune they lock into this almost Middle Eastern sounding melody, and their voices just complement each other perfectly, and like I was saying before on this one, but on tunes like Methamphetamine Blues, for example, just to give a little more of a specific thing with that the rhythm thing, there's a almost like a clanging song, a sound throughout that whole record. That's what made me think of Tom Waits. When you listen to Methamphetamine Blues, it's uh, it sounds, it doesn't sound like an actual percussion instrument. It sounds like something, like a found sound that was at like a construction site or something. Yeah, yeah, It yeah. probably was a percussion instrument that they may be affected, but in theory, that sound that you hear throughout that track should be very grating, but it's not for some, it just works. I don't know, that's just a mixed thing. It's like, that gets back to the thing of him just being the consummate uh, craftsman. Just an incredible range on this record, whether it's the quiet folk songs like Bombed, which is a beautiful piece. Love there are flowers hanging in the vine So high you cannot see Now my mind must go on holiday Torn from its hook A broken valentine I see the smoke from a revolver. It's almost like an interlude to a track that comes a few uh, songs later, uh, driving post-punk kind of thing on Sideways and Reverse. It's amazing what a range he covers, but the reason it all works is because of him. You mentioned folk. It actually, his vocal delivery actually reminds me of... It makes me think of John Prine a little bit too. Like yeah, the, on the quieter moments. Yeah, absolutely. on the quieter moments for sure. There's just like a lot in there, and there's this there's this tie between you know indie and country or whatever that that becomes is more pronounced with other bands, but certainly there is a 
there's something to his vocal timbre and delivery that almost reminds you of that almost sort of feels Western a little bit. I, I keep, I kept just thinking when I was listening to it, I was like, this is, I kept thinking about Springsteen for some reason, but because it, I don't think it is something that you would take immediately the same way when you hear a, 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 a gaslight anthem song or something that you would think about Springsteen. But I keep thinking about the, the thing that, that Springsteen tries to achieve in his darker moments that I do not, it does not resonate with me, but for some reason I think resonates better in this. I think also the couple of songs, um, Hit the city and That's a great uh, one. That's come a great... to me. The songs that have PJ Harvey in them. Yes, though both of those songs are phenomenal. Are phenomenal, and they 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 have sort of. I'm, I'm mentioning all different sort of genres, which I think says a lot about the album. They have this classic rock vibe to it, and they're this is not the kind of music where the guitar is showy, but it also is not buried or incidental, sort of like it is in. You know, you think about other grunge music and you don't think about, wow, that's a guitar virtuoso. I know Cobain gets a lot of credit for being influential, but you don't think about him being like, uh, it's not about him being like a great player, but I think the guitar in, in, in those songs has a, a really cool effect to it and come to me, they almost use sort of like the surf guitar. Yeah or whatever, and that, that you don't see coming. And I also think, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot about this, but his, his use of PJ Harvey, there, there's this thing that can happen with a male voice and a female voice when one of them is used as a specific compliment that is so perfect when it is done in a purposeful way. And I think her voice adds something to these songs that could not be achieved without adding a voice like hers to the track. Absolutely. And even down to the, the phrasing, if you notice when you listen to them sometimes, it's not always like there's, they have some really nice harmonies. She's not always right on with him. No, she's singing it differently. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. yes, She's almost at times a little bit behind him or maybe in front. It's not like they're, they're, they're not worried about rhythmically, locking up all the way through, but that's actually where the magic is. For sure. It, it reminds me a little bit that I, and I think, I don't know if he's told the story publicly or whatever, but I was talking to Amos about the, the version of El, the version of El Camino has Willie Nelson, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great track. I've been a prince and you know I've been a post by barbed wire fence and a murder of crows Leaving all I've loved and all I've seen Headed down the border road called the El Camino <laughs> and, and I was like, I love how he sings as if he, he, he's singing it in a completely different time as you are. Now, I guess what happened was he record, he got the track and it was the track that Willie Nelson got was a different pace than the real track. So he actually sang it at the wrong speed. Oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And they thought it sounded cool and they left it the way it was, but there is something she's almost like behind him a little bit 
on the tracks when when they're singing together sometimes and it sounds so cool the way that she does it she doesn't even sing the words in the same sort of phrasing in the way yeah. that he sings it and, and that's a great comparison because i love how amos and willie sound together on that yes track. and it's the same thing it's not, it's not like he's always locked in rhythmically no with amos but it just works because there's still a musicality in the way they play off each other it's the same thing with mark lanigan and pj harvey here and i it's it's almost counterintuitive sometimes if you were to do that in the studio i think when you're in the studio live that kind of thing feels more natural right yep yep when you're in the studio sometimes there's a tendency to say no we gotta this has got to be right you know this has got to be no you got to be lined up with him you know the harmony's got to be lined up rhythmically I like the fact that they just said, nah, nah, let her sing it the way she feels it. And yeah. that's actually what what makes it special. It's almost like if she were locked in rhythmically with him, it wouldn't be as interesting. Right. Absolutely. And there are a million ways to do it. You know, we've, I think we did a Lemonheads album, but there's, you know, the Lemonheads use Juliana Hatfield a lot and she and Evan Dando sing together. And that feels like it is done. That's perfect, but it's, but they also complement each other. It's not like this. It's a different way to do it. There are so many different ways to do it, but this one feels like perfect the way that it is done. And the, the other song I really loved that I thought Strange Religion was just a, a great, I keep saying like Dark Springsteen or whatever, but that, that moment on the album, I thought really, um, really, really, really like clicked for me. See a light The Buick's a century 73 like you Some strange religion I get my hands on some money, mama And it's shot in You know, I was thinking, how is this guy not like a rock icon? Uh, yeah, and it makes me frustrated with myself that it, it's taken me this long to really get into what he's doing. Now I'm going to want to check out other a lot of his other work. I mean, there's a lot to get into. It's the thing of art and commerce. Like, what is it, objectively speaking, when you listen to an artist like this? He should have had hits on the radio. Was it that he worked with so many different people and maybe he was just kind of all over the place? Like, what what is it that distinguishes him being sort of more of a cult Phenomenon, which he did have a following, he did have an audience, but like, why was someone like him not? Uh, how did he not cross into the commercial area in the way some of his contemporaries did? Like even like Soundgarden and, and those bands from the '90s. Yeah, well, and it, especially when you look at, at back at those bands from the '90s, there we've talked about this before. There are not a lot of successful grunge bands. You no, know, there's yeah, that's right, there's it's like true. five of them. So you would have thought from that era, given. They could have used anything they could have found at that point, you know, before they moved into the second, you know, wave of it, the Bush STP. You would have thought Screaming Trees would have been part of that, but they never really were. And in a way, I think from an artistic standpoint, that actually worked in Mark Lanigan's favor. Yeah, for sure. Allowed him to be more of what he wanted to be. You he know? was never fully tethered to that, so he didn't have to. It's just, I'm just surprised that. Uh, my only real introduction to him before this was Mad Season, where he's kind of in a secondary role anyway. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to get into with him. I mean, 
even just if you focus on his solo discography, I'm curious what else is in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, a, not that I didn't respect him before, but a, certainly a new respect for, for him after listening to this album. You want to move to Stained? Yes. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's funny. Well. Yeah, it's funny. You, I always have to say that once if Stain comes yeah. in. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the like being successful and then and and then being like maybe maybe Lanigan's career was better because they never had that moment because I, I was reading interviews and Mike Mushak, the guitar player from Stained mentioned how awesome he thought it was that the record label did not bother them at all on their first record, this one, and how frustrating it was that they bothered them about every single record afterwards, after that they became successful. And, uh, and I think that is, it's interesting, right? You know, if you, if you never, if you never have to deal with that, I think artistically now look it's a good problem to have to have sell millions of records and have the record company want you to continue to sell millions of records but i think from an artistic standpoint there is something that is rewarding about never having to do that there's a strange irony that they that uh, the label execs or the a and r people whoever it is that's interfering ultimately yeah that they caught lightning in a bottle and yep. then decide that they had to change it change it uh, yeah, yeah that's a strange irony right yeah. doesn't really doesn't really make sense Sustained is solidly in the beginning of their career, a new metal band from Springfield, Massachusetts, formed in the mid-90s. They are Aaron Lewis, Mike Moshak, Johnny April, and now Sal Giancarelli, who is the drummer, the original lineup, and the lineup actually threw their... They went quiet in like 2012 or so, and they're back now, but that was when um, John Wasaki, the original drummer, lasted until that time. So the original drummer is on this one. Their history is Mushak and Lewis met at a party in 95, got introduced to Johnny April and Wasaki, and they became a, like, mostly a hard rock and metal cover band in Springfield, Mass. They got pretty popular in the club scene in that era, in that area, playing like Alice in Chains and also playing Corn and stuff like that in the mid to late 90s. It's, it, it's interesting because like we at WISP, when I worked there, there was a, and Godsmack, by the way, a similar story. Godsmack ended up being a really big band, did a ton of covers in Springfield, Mass. And we... At YSP, and I worked with a band locally, this band Octane in Philly, that did oh, the I same remember thing. Them. Yeah. yeah. They played at the Grape Street, I think, like all the time, didn't they? They did. And they, they ended up getting this big following. They did an original record that we helped out with, but it, it's like this weird jump to make from cover band to original band for a lot of different reasons. One of them is financially, it's so rewarding to be a successful cover band in the Philadelphia area that like, 
you know, you saying know, goodbye and, to all that is tough. And the tribute band thing, I have to say, I've noticed this post-pandemic. A lot of clubs that were previously much more focused on original artists and almost exclusively original bands are now booking a lot of tribute bands because it helps the bottom line. Yeah, well, it's guaranteed, you know, if you're... If you're, you know, 35 or 40 or something like that, you know, going to see a U2 tribute band is almost like a, a guaranteed decent night, I guess, rather yeah. than going to see an original band you've never heard of. Yeah, and I've seen this trend at a number of even rooms that were considered more like listening rooms are now booking, <clears throat> you know, these tribute band kind of like uh, groups. And it's like, well, I guess it's just a built-in kind of thing because... You know, but it's a little frustrating on another level that uh, yes. <laughs> that it's become it's become the trend because it it kind of does take away slots from people who are trying to do something new and fresh. But I get I get the appeal of it commercially. You know, well, you know, in the perfect world, there is a little bit of all of that. You know, there's there's uh, plenty of people who are just not interested in going to see original music, and if you're a a, a music venue that is open seven nights a week, you know, there's if if booking a tribute band once a week allows you to, and you sell 500 tickets allows you to do the original band to sell 150 tickets maybe it's worth but the problem becomes when you're like well why don't we just book the tribute band five nights a week rather than yeah you know? well then, then then you're a totally different kind of venue at that yep, point yeah yeah you know? yep. <laughs> um so so they put out a an album of original music in 96 called tormented and their manager, who is a, co a cousin of Aaron Lewis, gets them on as a an opening slot for Limp Biscuit. And um, as Aaron Lewis tells it, we got on a bill with Limp Biscuit just a couple of months before Thanksgiving in 1997. And Fred Durst wasn't happy when he saw the album's cover. He saw he told us we were all fucking whack, and he thought that we were fucking devil worshippers. So that tormented when you look at the cover. <laughs> has a cross and a Barbie doll on it, like covered in blood. Whoa. Yeah. So, um, and a, I think there's a Bible on it as well. So then Aaron Lewis says, for some reason he stood side stage the whole show. And at the end of the set, he had changed his mind. And all of a sudden he was talking about getting us signed. And he did. Fred Durst signed him, them to Flip Interscope, which was, Flip was his imprint with Jordan Schur. And he actually produced the record along with Terry Date. So Fred Durst was a producer of the record along with Terry this Date. One. This one. Dysfunction, correct. Really? Well, so yeah. they did have one album before this? Yeah, but it wasn't, It wasn't. this was the first major label release. That okay. was an independent one. Wow, Fred Durst, I didn't know he was uh, involved in this. That's he it. was, yeah. So, and Terry Date produced a lot of metal, rec metal records, Bruce Pantera, Metal Church, Engineered, and also, I couldn't figure it out, Produced or or engineered a Screaming Trees record as well. So that is ah, the, that's the connection there. That is the connection. So we'll come back to this album, but what happens after this album is there was, when I talk about new metal, there was like a six year period where these bands toured like a motherfucker, like all the time. And it was sort of the last vestige, as, as far as I can remember, of building bands that way, you know, because there wasn't a ton of radio airplay. It was mostly just playing shows, playing shows, playing shows. I saw so many of these shows at the Electric Factory. Um, after this album, they were, 
or maybe on, I think it was on the tour for this album. They were touring on the Family Values tour with Limp Bizkit and did, Aaron Lewis came on stage and did Outside with Fred Durst, which was a an acoustic song, just him and Fred Durst and became this, the live version of it became this enormous hit. And then the next album was Break the Cycle, which had, uh, it's been a while, sold 5 million records, 700,000 its first week, debuted at number one. Man, it's a bygone era right there. Yes. <laughs> then 14 Shades of Grey came out, debuted at number one, sold 2 million. Then Chapter 5 came out, debuted at number one. And then in 2011, they sort of went dormant. That was when Aaron Lewis started doing his solo thing and then his solo country thing. And then, um, and now they're, they're back now. They have an album coming out in September. I did find a, an article from Billboard from 99 because Dysfunction was a slow success, was not a success as it came out. And I thought this was really interesting in 99. The headline is by the writers Carla Hay. Flips Stained Stands Tall as Proof of Rock's Resurgence. If there's any doubt that heavy rock is on an upswing, look no further than Stained for Proof. The band has been finding a growing audience with increasing sales for its Flip Electra Records album Dysfunction. Industry observers are crediting Stained's blossoming success to constant touring and an association with Limp Bizkit. Released, in April, released April 13th, Dysfunction entered the Heat Seekers chart at number 10 on the May 1st issue, and the album rose to the number one spot on that chart on October 9th. Dysfunction reached Heat Seekers' impact status when it rocketed from 103 to 78 on the Billboard 200. This issue, the album stands at number 82 on that chart. The organic growth of Stain's fan base is similar to the grassroots following developed by Limp Bizkit. That act's lead singer, Fred Durst, has been something of a mentor to the Springfield mass-based Stained. Um, Yada, yada, yada. So I just think it is interesting that this was at a time when albums would grow through touring because this was this album was not a hit immediately when it came out. Um, and it's a testament to something that we talk about a lot is that if you build something in that way, even yes. once you have the millions of records, no matter what happens commercially, you're going to have staying power because... That's sort of the mechanism is that sort of touring approach, you know? Yeah. And I remember seeing them at the time and honestly, they were fucking awesome. <laughs> like they, they were an awesome live band. They didn't do anything other than play sort of straight and forcefully, but they were, they wrote good songs and they were an awesome live band. And I'll never forget seeing them. They had a show at the electric factory I think it was the return of the rock tour or something that got rescheduled and the show must have been deep in the summer because i remember walking into the show and my roommate and i was were at something else beforehand so we got there just as stain started and you walked in and as soon as you walked in you were covered with like the your own sweat like it was one <laughs> of those that was so disgusting when you walked in but was an just fucking awesome show that they tore through a sweaty electric factory, you know? Um, I probably like lived in that venue for a solid four or five years during this era. When you um, think about it, electric factory, I feel like shows like that defined what made it distinctive. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So this album ended up selling 2 million records. The, the singles were just go home and mud shovel 
Mud Shovel is this like interesting song that was never really a hit, but everyone loved so much that it it's like a staple on rock radio now, even though it was never really a hit or anything. Um, th this album is funny to go back to because it it's every, every lyric is so obvious and self-loathing. <laughs> <laughs> and the the album itself is pretty simple, you know, and short, but I still feel like the good songs are so affecting and feel honest to me. You know, every song is is sad in a different way. Where is the Aaron Lewis quote? All the lyrics are about me. <laughs> That's why it's called dysfunction. I just list all the fucked up stuff I've gone through in life, which <laughs> it it does certainly feel like it is uh, the reason I thought it was such an interesting contrast to the Lanigan album is there's so much going on in the Lanigan album and it feels so, so um, deep in so many different ways. Whereas this album, it's just drop B guitar mostly. And his voice I think is pretty outstanding, right? He, he seems like a, a pretty great singer and is able to convey when you listen to somebody like Kurt Cobain or something, you feel like when he's singing about negative emotion, you feel it sort of in this, um, like almost like his voice is falling apart, you know, almost like he's straining to do it. Whereas Aaron Lewis's voice is giant the entire time, but I think Confey is the same thing. Does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, and he also has some similar, different timbre than a bit than Mark Lanigan, but that baritone. Yep rock voice that I, I I feel like for rock music for especially for heavier rock music if you have that kind of vocal instrument yeah you're always gonna stand out in, in some ways because uh like you said he ha he's a very skilled singer he's not just a and uh, one other thing about him is he, his scream skills yes are good are good I know that's not normally my cup of tea but I've come to appreciate it more because of some of the heavier records we've discussed. And I was almost thinking he needed to do it a few times more because some of the biggest, most powerful moments in the record are when he goes into that scream vocal. Yeah, I mean, the the mud shovel, the part in mud shovel probably two thirds of the way through yes. where he just <laughs> screams the name of the song a few times. And that, by the way, that song, there's a heavier version of that song on Tormented. And this is a, there are a few songs on that album that are also on this album that they that they sort of redo. I think he he's good at using the scream in a as a compliment rather than a core thing. I think it's it's in the album, but what would you say? He's probably screaming fifteen percent of the album. Yeah, if maybe that, if that yeah. much. If that much. It's more of a it just adds dynamic to everything else he does. Yep. I so I I, I love this whole album. It, it does feel dated when I listen to it a little bit. It feels like it appealed to the younger version of me, at least lyrically, in, in how straightforward it is. I think me...
is is the best example of a song that really got to me at the time and at this point seems like seems like maybe it appealed to me at at 20 and at at 40 it it maybe seems a little obvious but the the opening lyrics I hear you talk about your family life. I wish I knew just what that means. I guess my mo- my mother never loved my dad, and now I wear it on my sleeve. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it leaves nothing to chance. You know, yeah. there's nothing <laughs> veiled. Uh, there's no there's nothing obscure about where you have to parse out what he's trying to say. It's right no, there. and but it's also it later in that song he. He also recognizes it. I think it's in the chorus. He says, "Look at me, I'm so pathetic." Yeah, I actually had those <laughs> yeah. lines written. Down. I can't believe I'm just an addict. I've never needed anyone to help me. I'm begging you to please come save me from myself. Save me from myself. Yeah, like when you think of this era of rock music and you look at those lines, there is something that's borderline trite about it. Yes, but I don't think he's. I think my. I, if I were to guess. My assumption is he was not trying, he wasn't pandering. Like I, this honest, this album feels honest to me. And I believe that he wrote those lyrics honestly. And I, I think, I think you could look at it at a different lens or if it was by a different band at a different time. And you could say, well, he was, he was just like, he was fishing from a, you know, a, a pond full of depressed young male fish at the point and he knew what to do. But I think he was one of those fish, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I don't think, it doesn't feel contrived. I think that's why it, it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some, there's an earnest quality to, you feel what he's, you feel that what he's saying is something that means something to him. Uh, I could see how in another context you might see lyrics like this and say, oh, well, were they going for something? Right, right, right. But I don't think they It doesn't were. feel that way here. No. It doesn't feel that way. He generally seems to hate himself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, mud shovel. is the one that is an all-timer. I said that the album isn't particularly interesting from a an instrumental point of view. I do think that this song, the reason it sticks out is the bass line is so cool. And then on the guitars that are doing that cool um, harmonics thing where you lay your, your fingers over the the strings. I love and that. I love is, that, yeah. Dude, it is it's such It's almost a, like a chiming kind of sound yep. to it. Because I, yep. I mess around with that on the acoustics sometimes. I wish I could be better at it. Uh, have you ever heard Michael Hedges? A little quick no. little tangent. No. Uh, he was this, uh, he passed away years ago, but he was this amazing acoustic guitar player. And his, I mean, he did so many things that were unusual in the way he played acoustic guitar. He made it sound like more than acoustic guitar, but his ability with the harmonics. Yeah. Where he would hit harmonics on one part of the fretboard, and then while that was ringing, he would hit others. And it'd almost be like a, a, a symphony of harmonics coming off the guitar. You're right, that, that kind of exists in a different way, in electric guitar uh, situation here. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if you've... Do you know who Zach Wilde is? Yeah, he's uh, so, another new metal, uh, kind of well, a new no, metal so, icon, isn't he? So Zach, Zach replaced Randy Rhodes in Ozzy's band. Oh, okay. And, okay. and then But Zach, isn't he kind of new metal, too? In his well, own? he... I wouldn't say he's new metal. He so then he 
He had his own band, Black Label Society, and now he has replaced Dimebag Daryl in the in the reconstructed Pantera. Oh, um, wow. And so Zach, but Zach is famous for that squeal pinch harmonic thing that mm. that guitar players do, but he does it better than anybody else. Like there are some songs where it's every note he's playing it. He definitely <laughs> overdoes it, but no person, no no person who likes rock music who has learned to play guitar has never like, I remember figuring out how to do that. And yeah. I can, I can't do it on command the same way that he can just on specific notes. But when you make that noise happen with a guitar, you're like, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, 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 I don't know you know, what's interesting about it is it's so unlike anything else you would do on the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not chordal really, although there are technically notes within a chord when you play, but it's something else. It makes the instrument, sound like something it's not which i love yep and then the the only other song i wanted to bring up because it it feels i guess i think is like sort of the best written song in the album is home Because from a, I think from a pop song standpoint, it's got the best hook. And I think lyrically it hits a note that doesn't feel quite as silly, I guess, as some of the other, silly for lack of a better word, but like another sleepless night again, hotel rooms, my only friend and friends like that don't add up to anything is a, <laughs> a good line. It's um, weird when you read some of these lyrics like that. Yeah, you think of it in a different way than when you hear it in the context of the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it, you it feels like it's more trite when you just isolate the lyrics. Yeah, but the the hook is I'm afraid to be alone, afraid you'll leave me when I'm gone, and I'm afraid to come back home, which is um, you know I like this that that song was a single again was not a particularly big hit. None of the songs on this album were, was a particularly big hit, but always sounded so good on the radio. It was such like a a great song to play on the radio. I, I it was funny going back to this album. I suggested this album having not listened to it in a long time, just like looking through my Spotify is like and then listening to it, my first blush through, I was like, I wonder what Mootloo's going to think of this. This album feels kind of silly listening to it, but then after listening to it again the second time, I was like, nah, this album's great. No, I, I thought it was uh, really good, and I, I've been aware of Stain, but never listened to anything. I, I know it's been a while. That's kind of... Yeah, well, that knew. song was so big. It was a massive hit. Yeah. Massive Do you remember hit. Outside? Was that another tune of theirs? Yeah, so Outside was the song that, it was funny, it came... It got popular, and I think caused It's Been a While, because it was the one that was on the, um, let me, I, I want actually want to play it for you. Um, it was, it was on the Family Values live album, and it was just him and Durst. And, and that song you're saying is kind of what what blew them up. Blew yeah, them up. here.
You don't remember this tune? No. I want to get to the chorus because I want to see if you remember the chorus. Maybe I'll the chorus is, Yeah. And the video is legendary because just him and it's Fred Durst sitting behind him. Oh, really? Yeah. Durst sings in the chorus, I think, with him. Understated, I love that. Yeah. He's not trying to oversing it. You know? You remember it now? Yes, I recognize the hook. Yeah. There's one famous this was, part. This was definitely that was definitely on the radio. Yes, it was, but yeah, it, yeah. it it wasn't a single. And I remember fighting with the music director at WYSP uh, at the time. I was like the late night DJ, and I also did the new music show. And I was like, "Hey, there's this song on the Family Values that we should play it." And she would never play it too slow, too slow, too slow. And then I think WAAF in Boston started playing it because they're a Massachusetts band and it blew up and there's a studio version of it on break the cycle but it is not nearly as good as the live version is I always wonder about that you could probably have a better perspective on this as a programmer but why isn't it that more songs that are just vocal guitar vocal piano aren't hits because I'm thinking of like John Legend his breakthrough song was vocal and piano yeah it's funny they work there there was a there was a song by Corey Taylor actually from Slipknot called Bother that was on the Spider-Man soundtrack that ended up being it was again just him and an acoustic guitar and was ended up being a smash but was so hard to get on the radio because everybody was like ah why do we people fucking love those songs they love them another example band we recently discussed was uh, a death cap for well we did postal service but yeah death cap for cutie yeah that ben gibber that's just him and a guitar yes so what's the thinking i'm curious from a radio standpoint what is the thinking that there's a general sense that those songs should not be singles. And I'm just wondering why, because you, there's all these examples of how people love those songs. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I know at one point, a lot of radio programmers were concerned about tempo. And when you're scheduling music, you don't like, you don't want to put too many slow songs in a row. You don't want to put a really slow song next to a fast song. That was how you programmed radio. But I, I thoroughly disagree yeah <laughs> like, right yeah <laughs> well, it's like, like what connects to the what gets the reaction right dude, what lights but, up the phones that's kind of what matters in the end what now now look if every song was that way it wouldn't it wouldn't have the same effect but i just think about being at a rock show and the song that er, the songs that everyone sing along to when the lighters are up and that that's the famous moment in that song where fred durst like in between aaron lewis singing goes feeling those lighters <laughs> like <laughs> and it was in Biloxi um because he goes Biloxi uh but uh yeah I, I don't know I, I, I have no idea why why programmers are like that because I never never was yeah it's a strange thing it's a and then every time there's a song that somehow sneaks in that becomes a hit like that you're like well 
maybe maybe that's why it's distinctive that it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you enjoyed? Yes, I did. Absolutely. We covered a few of the undeniable standouts: Mud Shovel and me. Yeah. But I'll go a couple others. Uh, Suffocate, the first track. It's a good, it it definitely, it is a really heavy intro to an album that isn't quite as heavy as I think the intro is, but it's a cool tone. It's a cool tune. It pulls you in as soon as you listen. And when I heard that, I thought, my first thought was, this band sounds like the the exact inflection point of grunge and new metal. Yes, 100%. They're right at the cross, like they're both. When they, and it's interesting that they, they as a cover band were doing, uh, like you can hear the direct line from Alice in Chains to this band and they were doing Alice in Chains songs and they were also doing corn songs. And it, when you think about the time, you know, 98, that was right when you would be a person who would be part of the new metal movement, but also probably have been listening to Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam for the last, you know, 10 years. You probably grew up with that music and now there's yep. this new sound. Yeah, and uh, speaking on the Alice in Chains, I mean, just go. Yeah, is so reminiscent of Alice in Chains, and I what I like about that tune, which is what I, I mean, I would say on any given day, I would say Alice in Chains is my favorite rock band. That's I've always felt that way, and there were certain elements of Alice in Chains that made them so special to me, and it's actually a thing that existed with the Pixies and Nirvana, but the the dynamic between a very quiet verse sound. And then just the monster riff on the chorus. It's such a simple formula, but when it's done right, it, it really works well. And that's kind of what this song has. And also another thing I like about that tune, and even about the record on the whole, is the songs aren't always like just straight up. They're very well-written songs. Mm-hmm. But there are interesting twists and turns in the melody and the arrangement. I think that's what made it compelling to me, hmm. is that even though the lyrics at times could sound a little bit the compositions are straight ahead and the lyrics are straight ahead. But I think what makes it interesting, whether it's more his singing or just it's the delivery of it that I think is unique. And he doesn't, he's pretty dynamic in his vocal melodies and in his range vocally and what he can do. Because he can be very quiet, can be very affecting. And then later in that same song, he can be just screaming. And uh, I think he, I actually, you were saying the guitar playing is second, but I thought the guitar playing is, uh, what's the guitarist's name? Mike Moshak. Yeah, I mean, his guitar playing is pretty phenomenal to me. He's one of those players that has mastered the thing of he can play leads very well. I mean, he can really rip the solos, but there's always a rhythmic attack in the way he plays. I love that style where a soloist, but they're really still ultimately always locked in on a rhythmic level. Uh, His playing is just very dynamic to me throughout the whole record. So, yeah, it's, it's just... It's weird because he, this is something that you came up listening to, so there's a, a nostalgia you look back. I, I have no frame of reference. Yeah. So, but I can see other, you know, connections to this band, other, other bands where you can certainly draw parallels. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'd, it wasn't, it wasn't that, like, I think the, um, 
Oh, by the way, the other band that is obviously influential to this band is Tool. Like you can hear this oh, yeah. band directly yeah. coming from, from Tool. But I think the impressive thing about the guitar playing is how, and I think this is partly what you mean by the how rhythmic it is, is how tight everything is. Sometimes I think about what the wave file looks like of the music <laughs> when I am listening to it. And if you're if you're not a music person or an audio person, essentially, this is what the computer file looks like of the music. So it's like that wavy thing that you see. And a band like Stained, I imagine the wave file looking like almost square at points because the, the playing is so tight and in the pocket and the, the music is so, like there's not a ton of texture to it. Um, in, in terms of, and I think his guitar playing is important in that way in that it is so solid. It's like a fucking wall. You know what I mean? It's almost, it's, it's, it makes the rhythm section sound fuller and it's actually, it's yeah. closer to being part of the rhythm section than it's like a big lead instrument. Well, and it's so low, you know, and seven string guitars have B, but they don't play like the, so the extra string on a seven string is a, a B string and they don't, pl I don't think Stain plays seven strings. They just play and drop B. So. Which is what all these bands. Yeah. Because, because when you, when you do it, it, you can actually do the hammer on, on the lower strings yep. much easier. It's just, yep. uh, you can kind of play that anywhere on the fretboard and it's a, uh, it's kind of an addictive thing when you, if you play in that tuning for people play guitar yeah well and <laughs> also i think some of the you can hear some of the like the they do guitar wise they do interesting things in a song like home and the that you know when you're playing in drop tuning like that basically you can play bar chords with one finger like because it it basically puts the I might as well explain this. So when you, a lot of bands will play in drop d and essentially what that does is that the guitar is tuned essentially the top strings on the guitar are tuned to a D chord, which means if you just hit the top strings, they are playing a chord. So you can play any chord by just putting one finger over the top three, um, the top three strings. But also what you can do is you can create this, these sort of like spookier chords by playing the traditional bar chord shape, just sort of like a string down. And they do that on songs like home that, that create that sort of, um, that create that tone and that feel that you get from a, a song like that. And I think, um, yeah, so, so it's really low just for perspective, a, a normal string, a normal guitar is tuned to E and they're playing in B, which is, it's you know, quite a three, drop down. Yeah. It's like three steps down. So it's very low, but it's almost hard to get the sound correct. By the way, it's the tuning so low. Can, if you try to do it on an acoustic, Oh, the tuning yeah. can become a nightmare. Yeah. Because suddenly well, the string doesn't have the same tension anymore. Yes, it sounds sloppy, which is another reason why this sounds cool because it doesn't sound sloppy even though it's so low. Um, and it's, it's actually hard to keep, if your guitar isn't set up for it, if you're in a tuning like that, it's hard to keep the, the guitar even in tune. Yeah, because you're the, constantly, the tension's you probably have to tune like neck. every song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it also creates that droning kind of sound. That, uh -huh. uh, but I feel like that sound was all over records at this time, heavier oh, records. Yeah. Oh, just, yeah, absolutely. Whether 100%. people realize it or not, like that was a big defining part of this this music. Yep. Well, why don't we talk about a song that has nothing to do yes, with- Yes, this is totally disconnected from <laughs> ever. You can tell right away this is one of my picks. Yeah, oh, 100%. <laughs> 100%. Um, why don't we go into it? Let's so- go. 
uh, let's see, Reuben James. Text your phone, I'm around again. To my surprise, you replied, I'm in. Heaven knows where you've been, but I know that you're thinking about. I've been thinking about it. It's been such a long while, my dear. Was it the grow around this time I'm here? Now, Reuben James is a musician I've been following on Instagram for at least a few years now. Okay. Every now and again, I'll come across someone that, because of something they're doing musically, whatever it is, just really engages me. And he's one of those musicians. Uh, he's a musician, vocalist, songwriter, producer from Birmingham, uh, UK. So he's an English artist. He's worked extensively as a sideman over the years with a wide range of artists. So he's already someone who's very highly respected as a session player, sideman. He's worked with Sam uh, Smith. He's worked with Herbie Hancock. He's worked with Marcus Mumford. I mean, a very wide range of artists have enlisted him to play on his records. When you see his playing, it's worth going to his socials, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, whatever it might be. He's such a talented keyboardist. And it's he's one of those musicians, I think what really impressed me about him is he has all the technical chops. I mean, he can play. But it's not about that with his playing. There's just so much emotion and musicality that flows out of it. You, f- you really feel what he's playing. And I can't, you can't say that about every instrumentalist. Uh, so I heard him more as an instrumental- instrumentalist at first. But now, more recently, he started singing on his own. He's a good singer, too. And uh, so I was kind of following him more just for these grooves he was coming up with and... Mm. Uh, you know, just following him on that level. But over time, he started putting out a few singles, and now he just released uh, his debut album, Champagne K- uh, Kisses, which just came out. Gr- great title, too, Champagne Kisses. Oh, come on. It's an amazing <laughs> title. Amazing. It feels like it was it was created by artificial intelligence to get you to like it. It's, a, it's, it's <laughs> a very Prince-esque sort of... <laughs> Absolutely. Are you kidding? I'm amazed that a title like Champagne Kisses doesn't already exist as an album title. It's, it's, it's a shy, great album It's amazing title. that it took this long, but it's here now. Y- yep, for And it's sure. perfect for this uh, music. I mean, he's someone who's really established a big following online. He has a lot of plays, just as an indie artist, a lot of plays on Spotify. And he's actually as an independent act, started mounting some pretty successful tours throughout UK and Europe. I don't think he's done as much here. I think he may have come here to play a few shows, but in the UK and Europe, he started mounting some like sold-out tours just as an indie act, just from the audience he's built online. Now, this song, I singled out this one. Now, if you like this song, it's worth checking out the whole album, Champagne Kisses. Well, it's got so fun to say. <laughs> <laughs> Champagne Kisses, it's a 10-track album. Runs just about half an hour, no filler. It, I think he put a lot of time and care to putting to, putting it together as an album, as a listening experience. But I singled this tune out, This Could Be, because I remember seeing this song purely as an instrumental, like maybe at least a mm, year ago. That's crazy, yeah. So I remember seeing him, and this is a collaboration he did with another very talented UK musician named Connor Albert. Another guy similar, I don't think he's as much of a vocalist, but another guy from the UK who's built this big online following and just same thing, comes up with these really interesting musical pieces. You know anything he posts is going to be interesting. Same thing with Reuben James. So they did this track together and I remember seeing this track there's no vocals or anything like that yet. Just the groove but that synth line. You know that synth line that you hear in this. And I think when he did the video, I don't know what you call that. It's like a tube that you play into the synth 
It's like a vocoder, basically. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was going to say vocoder. That wasn't my, my guess. Okay. I think that's what it is, it, or some variation of it. So when I remember seeing the clip, I remember he was playing it through the vocoder, that line, that melody, because it sounds like a vocal line. So I kind of hooked into it musically, and then it was cool to hear the evolution of it into a full-on track. Great down-tempo groove. This is one of those songs that feels slow, but it grooves. We've talked about those songs. like Down-tempo, but it has such a deep groove to it. I love his understated, very soulful vocal style. He's a great falsetto. And then when you when you look at the lyrics, at least in my perception, it was a song about trying to rekindle a past relationship. And uh, you know, it's just it has one it has that feel good. There's something about this track, this album that if you love soul music, you just it's undeniable to me. It just it, it has that feel good energy to it. You know, he definitely channels some of the nineties R and B artists like D'Angelo and Maxwell undeniably so he uh this is just a great tune a great record and a guy who you know again has already made a name for himself in the business as a sideman but i think is now emerging as an artist in his own right and he's kind of just getting started on that front so and he, i think he's pretty young too i don't i mean he's been he's kind of like a prodigy type of musician so uh, excited to see kind of how his career goes but uh it, it's worth following him on his socials because he's just such a great musician so i it was it sounded to me like D'Angelo, but a smiling almost. It, <laughs> yeah, it just feel good. There's like the feel yeah. good. It's, it's upbeat, you know? Yeah, it, it reminded me of D'Angelo a lot in the vibe. And even his, it, it's so interesting to me that you said he just started singing on the tracks because he's a good singer, you he's know? Good, I imagine he's been singing all along, yeah. but this is his debut album. So, I mean, yeah, I think he was more known as a musician uh, I'm sure he's been singing for a long time, but he's just kind of now emerging as an artist. So you're right. It's a pretty impressive for a guy who's kind of making his debut as as a lead singer. It's just such a, a feel-good soul song. You know what I mean? Like it is, and it's so, so well put together and uh, almost shiny in, shiny in listening <laughs> to it. You know, it's a cool song. It's definitely, I, now I looked at the picture and it came from you. I looked at the name and I almost felt like I could predict what it was you going to sound like. You knew what it was going like. to be. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it was also, it was also really good. Like I really, I really enjoyed it. What a talented guy he obviously is. Yeah. And he, even the thing you're talking about that positive, that's his vibe. Like personally, like when, even when he mm. does little bits where he talks to the audience and, He's a guy who just exudes positive energy, and that's uh, I think I think people respond to that. There's so much negativity out there when you come across an artist and musician who just you can see like he just loves what he does, yeah. And that comes across when you watch him. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, just to me uh, someone to watch. You know, I think someone who people in the industry know, but maybe I could see him whether it's this record, or another record, like breaking through to a bigger level in the mainstream. Yeah, I I, di I didn't know anything about him, but I thought he might have been somebody who was big that I just didn't know about. You know, he 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 gives off the appearance of somebody who should be a a pretty big star. It's kind of what you said about Mark Lanigan. Like he know he knows what he is. Like he's yeah, so yeah, dialed sure. in, and like, yeah. there's a level of craftsmanship there. Yeah, great pick, great pick. Right on. Glad you liked it. If you want to suggest an album again, just hit us online, any of our socials. There's a link in the bio or carlandryrecordclub.com or Apple Podcast Reviews. Until next time, we'll talk to you then. Stay free, my goose.